So I still remember the very first time that I went to an Anglican service. Um, it, uh, I was a, a college student. I, uh, a, an older friend who I respected invited me to this service, and they did so many weird, strange things. Um, I knew within like 30 seconds of that service, like things are going to be strange here. Um, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, that's my experience right now, Rick. Um, but they were, you know, the, the leaders were wearing these weird clothes. There was a lot of like standing up and sitting down. Um, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the prayers that were said had been written beforehand. So like, how could they actually really mean these things? Uh, these were the, the sort of thoughts that were going through my mind. Now, obviously my, my mind has kind of changed a little bit. You might be able to tell. Um, but another thing that really struck me was just how much scripture was read in the service itself. Um, I thought that my Bible church like really loved the Bible. And then I come to this like, I, I, couldn't even know, I didn't even know how to pronounce it, like Angelican or something. Like, like I go to this, this Angelican church and I'm like, what, what's going on? Like they obviously love the Bible too. Um, so it was just this odd experience of um, discomfort with the unfamiliar things, uh, but also this intrigue and appreciation and attraction towards it. These things are all kind of mingled into one. Maybe you've had an experience like that before. Maybe, again, like maybe that's your experience um, finding this tradition. Well, this, this Sunday especially is one of those, wow, there's a lot of Bible in the service this morning. Um, that passage from 2 Kings is a big one. Uh, and I've, I've had the, the privilege and, and the honor of, of sitting with it uh, this last week. And my goodness, I, I just love this passage. But it's also a really strange passage, isn't it? Uh, there's really bizarre customs and taboos of that culture that, that we see kind of unfolding. Uh, there's really bizarre um, behaviors that are happening here. There's even these supernatural moments that happen. And again, it's, it's kind of this mixture of I'm, I'm drawn to this, but it's also weird and confusing. There's also some beautiful prayers that we see throughout this. Uh, it's a model of prayer for us. We see a lot of different postures of heart uh, throughout it as well. So I want us to move through this passage in, in kind of three movements and three sections, and, and then I want to see what this has for you, for me, for us as a community. Um, but again, I, I strongly believe that the, the themes and uh, the, the concepts that are in here uh, transcend that moment of the time. I mean, even though this passage was written thousands of years ago, uh, I think that there's something for all of us in this. So let's, let's dive in and move through this passage this morning. So in this first, we could call it a first act. And again, just, just to be clear, it's a long passage. We're not going to do this verse by verse. Uh, we'd be here all day. I wish we could because um, there's a lot going on. So there's, there's some things that we can skip and maybe we can chat about downstairs in the fellowship hall with some coffee. So the prophet Elisha, he's, he's ministering throughout the country. That, that was his job. And similar to when you travel across uh, the country or, you know, uh, like when Molly and I drive down to visit family in, in Olathe, Kansas, we have these familiar rest stops, right? We've got our favorites, uh, favorite restaurants. And so now the course is we have to do it this way uh, or else we're sort of out of our rut or whatever. So same thing back then. Elisha's traveling. He, uh, this, this wealthy woman, she uh, opens up her home. They even add an extension to their home to accommodate for him, which just what a, a radical, beautiful example of hospitality, right? So they're, they're making space for Elisha. And he wants to pay them back. He wants to pay back this Shunammite woman uh, for her kindness. Uh, but you can tell that, that she must be like 
part Minnesotan because she's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need anything right now, right? Um, there, you know, she says that her community is taking great care of her and so she just politely refuses his help. But he doesn't take no for an answer. So Gehazi is there, uh, the servant of Elisha. And he, he just states the obvious. And you have to love this about him, right? I mean, I don't know if Elisha's clueless or whatever, but, uh, you know, Gehazi, the, the servant here, he says she doesn't have a son. And her, her, us, her husband is too old. She's not going to be conceiving. She doesn't have a son. And in the ancient world, uh, this is not something that could be remedied or, or replaced by just having more wealth uh, in their lives. No, this was a, a really tragic thing. Because in the ancient world, the son was the one who carried on the legacy from, from the previous generation to the next. And so the, the name of this family wouldn't continue. Uh, the property, the land of this family wouldn't continue to the next generation. Uh, and all of that wealth, uh, I, who knows what would have happened to that. So if this woman's, when this woman's husband would have died, she would have been in a really insecure, unstable sort of situation. So it was a bad situation that she was in. She's uh, very wealthy, but in that culture, wealth doesn't override custom. Uh, she would have been in a terrible, dangerous situation. So Gehazi identifies this need, and he suggests it to someone with spiritual authority. And so Elisha then, uh, he invites uh, the woman back, and, and he states, as, as a matter of fact, that by this time next year, she will conceive, and that she'll bear a son. Now, how does the woman respond to this? Does she jump out of her chair with excitement? No, you can tell that she's wrestled with this issue for a long time. You can tell that in her imagination, this situation, the, the story of it or, or her longings or whatever is a, is a closed case. She's already accepted her reality and moved on. And so for this man of God to kind of come into her life and say, no, you're gonna have a son, she just has this, this tension that's inside of her, right? And you can feel it, you can hear it uh, in, in her words. It's, it's almost as if she's saying to Elisha the prophet, don't open this back up. Like, back off, slow down, buddy. Don't mess with my heart in this moment. Maybe you've had an experience like that where hope has been dangled in front of you and, and dashed and taken away only to, to come back and be dangled in front of you again and you're, you're more cautious. The, the wall is up. The, you know, the, the guard is up. Your shell has been put on. And so that's precisely what we see her, understandably so. I don't, I don't blame her, but that's precisely what we see her doing here. This man of God offers some otherworldly promises and there's a flickering of hope. Well, sure enough, in the... The, the text kind of skips over that, what that year looked like for her. But I wonder if she left Elisha that day just thinking that he was completely crazy. And then maybe a, a month or two or however, whatever the math is, a little bit later, she, she feels a fluttering inside of her womb. What would that have been like for her? And then to actually carry the child and give birth to the child. Well, this first act, we see that the, the stage has been set. We see Gehazi, this faithful servant who connects the needs of the world to the authority of God's people. We see the Shumanite woman whose abundant hospitality has completely altered her destiny. And we see a prophet who so boldly and compassionately desires blessing for her life. So the story could end here, couldn't it? 
it goes on. There's more pain, there's tragedy that happens, but there's also joy and excitement. So the boy grows up. We don't know exactly how old he is. We, we know that he's a child, he's not a, a man yet. But he goes out uh, into the field, it's harvest time, the reapers are out, they're, they're swinging their sides, you know. And unfortunately, there's this awful farming accident. And those of you who've grown up on farms, I'm, I'm sure you have stories like this. We don't know how he uh, got this, this wound on his head, but he does. He, he's bleeding, he's um, on the brink of death, and he's brought to his mother who puts him in the same room as the prophet. And tragically, he dies. The mother, she, she lays him down in this room. And she starts to make plans, right? She, for her story isn't over. She wants to go and find the prophet again. And isn't it interesting that on her way, she's stopped by two men, her husband, and then later Gehazi himself. And, and both of them basically ask uh, the same question. What, what are you doing? Why, why are you going? Uh, why would you go and see the prophet at this moment? This, this doesn't make any sense right now. And on both occasions, first in verse 23 and then in verse 26, she says the same three words, all is well, all is well. Now, how do you interpret that? Is she deflecting? Is she very in a, in a wise way? She's, she's rushing along the situation because she knows that time is of the essence? Is she sort of like throwing these guys off her tracks? And so she's like, all is well, go away. Maybe she's being very dismissive of them. Or maybe something else is going on. I wonder if she is prophetically naming a deeper reality in this moment. All is well, she says. Do you remember, uh, fast forward, do you remember when Jesus uh, is approached by Jairus, whose daughter is sick, and then you know, Jesus kind of takes his time, and by, by the time he gets there, that she's actually died. And do you remember what Jesus says to the group of mourners who are there? He says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. He speaks to a deeper reality. Everyone laughs at Jesus, but Jesus, by faith, sees a deeper reality. He calls out prophetically a deeper situation. He sees things differently. It is well, the Shumanite woman says, and then she gets on her donkey and she hauls it. <laughs> you could say something else about that that I just realized. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. <laughs> um, but she, she does. She books it, right? She goes to the prophet. It is well. It is well. Well, once again, like a compassionate and good shepherd, Elisha listens to her. He hears the concerns of her. There's more we could say about the staff and, and kind of this, this matter matters, materialistic sort of uh, embodied way of, of, uh, uh, that Elisha took by sending the messenger ahead. I, I wish we had time to unpack that a little bit more. Um, but we hear in her cry to Elisha in that moment that she doesn't hold back, does she? Like she puts it all on the table. You can tell she's mad too. She says, Elisha, I didn't, I didn't ask for this boy. You did. You're the one who set this up. You're the one who called this out. You're the one who petitioned the Lord God Almighty to give me a son. And now what? You know, in other words, she opened her heart up to hope. And then hope grew within her. She gave birth to hope. She held hope in her arms. But now, hope lies cold and lifeless back at her house. 
And so she looks at Elisha and she says, as surely as God lives and as you live, I'm not leaving your side until you do something about this. So she makes this bold, strong petition. This is an angry prayer. This is a prayer that comes from the depths of her heart. She puts it all out there. She's not afraid. She's vulnerable. She's bold. And her her petition here is just absolutely striking, isn't it? So what do we see in the third act? Admittedly, this happens pretty quickly. Elisha arrives on the scene, and he calls out to the Lord. Notice it doesn't say he calls out to God. He calls out to the Lord. It's printed in all caps. It's that covenantal name of God. This is the faithful God whose steadfast love endures from generation to generation. This is the God who called his people out of of Egypt and placed them in the land of promise. This is the Lord who unleashed ten plagues upon Pharaoh and his house in order to bring his people into a land of health and wholeness and, and good fruit. Elisha calls out to the king of heaven, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God Almighty, the king of the ages, Elisha calls out to. And then he does something really strange. I think this would have been strange to those people witnessing these things in the same way that it would be strange for us to pray like this. But what Elisha does is he, he sort of imprints himself upon the child. It's like he lays down on top of the child, and the text is really clear about this. You know, mouth on mouth, eyes on eyes, hands on hands. It's, it's as if he's, he's mapping himself onto the child. He's praying with the entirety of his whole being, every fiber of who he is. And then we see that his breath becomes the child's breath. His warmth becomes the child's warmth. His life becomes the child's life. And so sure enough, the child is restored. Now without any words, the the woman, she, she bows down, she reverently thanks the prophet, she picks up her son and goes back to her life. What a holy moment that would have been. Like the, the mystery, the majesty that would have been unfolding there, exploding. We don't need any words, right? Like just imagine what that would have been like. I wonder what it would have been like for her to go back home with her son. How many people did she actually share that full story with? Who would have known from that community? Well, what do these three acts, these, these sort of movements of prayer, these, um, this, this bold uh, story of resurrection, what, what do these mean for us here today, now, several thousand years later on the other side of the planet? Well, let me be clear about what this story is not. This story does not mean that if you pray hard enough, you'll get what you want. This isn't the church that teaches that. Uh, that's not actually the full story of what we see in the scriptures too, is it? In fact, the psalm that we heard this morning, did that really end with a happy bow put on top of it? Was that a good story? Did that have a good ending to it? No, it concludes with the psalmist saying, I cry out to you. Look to the right and see. There's, there's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Bring me out of this prison, the psalmist says. And that's not a one-off, like a third or, or if not more of the Psalms are written that way. 
We could also talk about the Apostle Paul who had this affliction imposed upon him. He, he called it a thorn of the flesh and, and he would petition the Lord and say, please take this away from me, take this away from me. The Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Or we could, we could even turn to, to King David who prays for the life of his newborn child, but that baby eventually dies. Or we could think of our Lord Jesus Christ himself who in the garden pleaded with his Father in heaven that this cup would be taken away from him. But instead, he was told that he must consume it and suffer upon the cross. So again, this is not a lesson saying that if you pray hard enough, you'll get what you want. Not every prayer results in the answer that we expect. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray these things. Because God meets us in these prayers, in these these desperate moments of our souls. God meets us in these things. Well, what else can we see? Well, Notice that it's, it's not Elisha who actually raises the child. It's not. It's not the prophet. That's not the name. He doesn't do this by his own name. He does this by the name of the Lord. He does this through the power of, of God Almighty. It's God Almighty who's the orchestrator of all of these events. He's the one who's set this plan into motion. God is the one who who sees the tender heart of this dear woman. How many years had she prayed prayers like Psalm 142? How many years had she wanted to conceive? How many years did it take before finally she let go of that prayer? Well, the Lord heard her. The Lord heard every single one, and he treasured them. God is the one who called Elisha to become her friend. God is the one who said, maybe you should stop here that first time and then return and return. He's the one who, who caused that relationship to thrive and grow that trust to be built. God is the one who worked through Gehazi, right? Who identified and named her needs, who spoke those out loud, who articulated the need and spoke it clearly. God is the one who gave her a child. He is the one who, by the inspiration of his spirit, stirred her to say, whenever, as soon as she left her dead child behind, God is the one who stirred her spirit to say, all is well, prophetically naming those deeper realities. And God is the one who, by his warmth and his abundant life, raise the child from death. So do you see the abundant love of God just moving throughout this passage? It's there, every single line, every single prayer. God is meeting this woman and Elisha and Gehazi throughout the entire story. He is the one who is moving all of this because of his great love for his people. But his love doesn't end there. It doesn't end in ancient Israel. And that's what we saw in our Mark passage, right? When God takes on flesh and he walks among us, He is the healer. He's the great physician. He's the one who, when people come to him, he he reaches out and he touches them and he blesses them. He did this for for Peter's mother-in-law, right? And then all night long, he goes on healing, casting out demons, pushing aside, pushing out the evil and the darkness from that land, right? God's heart is for men and women to have fullness of health and abundant life. So why does this story matter so much? Is it, are we just supposed to take away from this, oh, God sometimes answers prayer? No, it's much bigger than that. Because this isn't just a story about that one time that God raised a child to life. This is your story. This is my story. This is about us. This is about the new life that God gives us. You see, friends, out of God's abundant love, he, he called you forth. He, he gave you a life. He gave you consciousness and the ability to, to perceive his, uh, the mysteries of, of who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. But then tragedy struck all of us 
because of the violence of this world, because of the foolishness of our own hearts, uh, we ourselves have been struck with a deadly wound, with a head wound, you could say, something that we can't recover from. We've all succumbed. We've all been consigned to death itself. But God in his abundant mercy finds us. He He seeks after us. He doesn't give up. He draws near to us when we are wounded. He draws near to us when we're walking with a limp. He draws near to us even when all hope is gone and we think that it's uh, and we think that all hope is gone. He draws near to us even in our death. In Jesus Christ, the God Almighty stretched out his arms upon the cross so that all might come within the reach of his saving embrace. He stretches out himself over all of humanity so that we all might come within the, the saving embrace of his abundant love. His breath becomes your breath. His warmth becomes your warmth. His life becomes your life. So I wonder what sort of invitation is here for you this morning. Like I said, there's so many prayers that are in this passage. Maybe one of them resonates with you. Maybe you're like the servant Gehazi, right? Where there's someone before you whose need is so evident and so clear, but for some reason the authorities around you, they don't see it. Maybe you're being called to speak on behalf of that person, to bring them before the church or, or some other, whatever context that might be, so that they might be prayed for and blessed. Or maybe you're like that woman, right? Maybe you've given up on all hope for something. Maybe you've put certain hopes to bed, right? You've, you've cast them aside, that you've closed that book, you've closed that chapter, and you don't want to return to it again. How might you be invited to bring those petitions before the Lord? to bring those dashed hopes before the Lord. Because he's the God of resurrection. He's the God who brings things to life again. He is the one, right? Well, friends, we are all called to hold something from this. Maybe a third, maybe a third prayer would be one of just speechless thanksgiving. Maybe you've encountered the Lord in powerful ways and you still don't know what to say about all of it. You're still trying to make sense about all of it. You're still wondering how to tell that story to others. Make sure that you intentionally spend time holding that before the Lord because he deserves all of your gratitude, all of your thanksgiving. Make sure that you take that time. So I wonder if maybe sometime this week you can take a moment to lament the brokenness of this world. Repent of any sins that might be plaguing you. Pray for justice that you see or encounter. Grieve any death that you've witnessed this last season. Because in prayer, we bring the tragedies of the world before our Lord God Almighty. Because he is the one who deals with all of these things. Upon the cross, he destroys death itself. And there will be a day in which he comes back again. And all evil will be eradicated permanently forever. And death will lose its sting forever and ever. And we will gather before him. We'll be reunited with our loved ones from old. And we'll feast with him forever. That's what this story points us to. It's a sign reminding us of that great and beautiful and powerful day. We'll see our Lord face to face. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which you move among us and reveal your kingdom to us, Lord. You reveal your heart to us, that you desire life and not death. You desire wholeness and not illness. So Lord, this world is troublesome. It's dark, Lord. It's full of temptations and violence, Lord. And our own hearts, Lord, deceive us. 
So Lord, help us to set our hope upon you in the midst of all the tragedies and blessings of this world. Lord, may we not lose, lose our hope. Help us, Lord, to see you more clearly and to see your heart, Lord, for abundant life. Lord, thank you for your resurrection, Lord, that guarantee that we will have eternal life with you. Give us an imagination to see these things, Lord, more clearly. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.